God our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, until this weekend, movie theaters had been, had been shuttered for a whole year, right? Long enough for the popcorn to get stale. And we finally have this big opening opportunity, and what are they showing? Godzilla versus Kong. A big letdown? Not, not if you're 12 years old. To be fair, people who've actually seen advanced screenings are giving this fourth film in the Monster Universe series high marks, particularly for the special effects. Of course, we're reading more and more about how people are being paid to write good reviews these days, so there's that. I always thought that Amazon put my welfare and satisfaction above its profits, above all else, but now I'm starting to get skeptical. <laughs> Just kidding. As for Godzilla, I grew up back when special effects were a man in a rubber suit uh, destroying a miniature model of Tokyo. Uh, that end of the business has come a long way since then. It really has. These days, they're much more believable, almost like being there. But they need to be. They're playing to a, a way more sophisticated audience. So think about this. If you were going to create a religion these days that was centered around the premise that God visited the earth to save sinful mankind, if you wanted to make it as convincing as possible, how would you do it? Well, you'd want to start out with some absolute certainty, wouldn't you? You'd need to make sure there are plenty of eyewitnesses from start to finish. Maybe you'd have uh, God turning up in some unmistakably public place, like giving a speech at the United Nations. That would sure get the attention of the 24-hour news networks. <clears throat> They'd pick it up right away. God's speech would be bounced off dozens of satellites, and people all over the world could hear it in real time. You want to roll out a few miracles, too. Big ones. Like when God showed Moses how to part the Red Sea. That was impressive. But this is the 21st century. Maybe you'd want to step that up a little bit. Maybe you'd want to carve out a real-life footpath all the way from maybe New York to London. Maybe. The U.S. Navy has its Blue Angels precision flying team. You might want some real angels flying circles around those fighter jets at their next show. You know, we've been jaded by some pretty realistic special effects over the years, and, and so you're going to need something pretty spectacular and yet still believable if you want to get people's attention and keep it. If they think you faked it, well, you're through. So if all that rings even a little true, or makes even a little sense. It is, a wonder, is it a wonder that a man rising from the dead when no one is around to see it might not be splashy enough to get people's attention these days? There's no deafening explosion of the rock that was sealing the tomb, uh, no blinding lights as Jesus stepped forth alive again. At least as far as we know, the stone had simply been rolled away, reopening access to the burial chamber. The gospel accounts even seem to vary little in their telling of the Easter story until you dig deeper. And Mark's gospel, which tends to focus on the headlines, offers the fewest details of all. Our gospel reading this morning. At the heart of his gospel uh, is really a whole lot of, well, not much. Just a single angel in an empty tomb. But less detail doesn't make it any less spectacular. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if he just disappeared and went back into heaven on Sunday morning so long ago, it would be even harder for people to believe. After all, uh, it's God's promise of life beyond this life. So let's back it up a little bit and be astonished and assured ourselves uh, by the Easter resurrection of Jesus. 
The women headed to the empty, to the empty tomb early that Easter Sunday morning, uh, having no illusions they were going to find any life there. They had little reason to believe this grim task would be any different from all the other times they'd performed it. They'd seen death before. They'd returned to the tombs many times in the past to uh, take care of friends, family members, uh, always finding the same thing. The cemetery wasn't a place of life, and those who were laid among the rocks there were always dead, cold and lifeless. That's why they came with spices that morning. You didn't bring those unless you were expecting to find death among the stone tombs. Jewish burial rites at the time meant anointing the dead body with spices in order to hasten the decomposition and, and cover the odor. And then about a year later, they would come back and they would, they, and they would, they would gather up the, the bones that were left and they'd put them in a stone box called an ossuary. That stone box would be placed into a niche at the back of the tomb and that same tomb would be used over again and again, many times. Now that morning they came to anoint the body of the one that they'd hoped would bring new life to a world that was so desperately looking for it. When Jesus of Nazareth had been with them, they felt like anything was possible. Anything at all. They'd seen him heal people from disease. They'd seen demons cast out with just a word. They'd even seen the dead brought back to life. They'd heard, all, all heard him talk about the, the kingdom of God, which sounded to them like a whole new world sustaining a different kind of life than the one they were used to. A world where, where he said the first would be last and the last first. A world where violence and pain would be no more. A world where the brokenness and, and, and the, the sins of the past are forgiven. Where everything and everyone is made new. But this wasn't some distant world. In fact, Jesus said that this seemingly alien world was already here and breaking in among them just through his own life and ministry. Then that life had been cut short. Jesus had been nailed to a Roman cross as a criminal, a revolutionary who had threatened the, the world the, the, those in power knew and enjoyed. He talked as if uh, he were from somewhere else, not from this world. And if his wisdom and the authority with which he, he spoke and he taught seemed at times to be otherworldly, well, it was for a good reason. Jesus was the Son of God. Divine, and yet at the same time, he was fully human, like them, like us. They knew his family, his mother Mary, Joseph, his father, who had been a carpenter in Nazareth. These women had been followers of Jesus and had changed their lives, some of them in miraculous ways. But now he was dead, and the familiar burial work of the old world needed to be completed. They were certain they'd find no signs of life among the tombs, They'd laid his cold, dead body there themselves before sundown on Friday, before the great stone was rolled across the opening, sealing it before the Sabbath when no work was allowed to be done. They wondered among themselves how they were ever going to manage to move that stone so they could enter the tomb and finish their work. But when they arrived, they found that it had already been rolled away. And that wasn't all. The lifeless body they expected to find inside was gone. What they did find was a young man, and not a man. Matthew says an angel, and adds that his appearance was like lightning, his clothes white as snow, dazzling, Luke adds. There was a sight so unexpected and so unearthly, the frightened women bowed their faces to the ground. The angel said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. 
See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. He has risen. Three words. Three words that changed their lives and ours. They expected to find the same old thing. The dead among more dead. The stone undisturbed and yielding nothing but a cold, hard reality. What they discovered instead was life. The promise of real, abundant, eternal life that the world has already been looking for, that new life that Jesus had promised. They uh, were confused. They were afraid. You know, what does it mean? How could it be? You know, there was joy mixed with fear. Jesus was alive. They trembled as they ran from the tomb. <clears throat> Eventually, they did find the 11 disciples and the rest of Jesus' followers. I can't begin to imagine how excited they must have been to get a chance to share this good news. Jesus is alive. He's not in the tomb. He's risen from the dead. They'd seen it. They saw the empty tomb. They'd seen the angel. They'd heard the angel tell them that Jesus was alive. So they had the facts. They had the facts and they embraced the hope. They expected the disciples to rejoice with them and celebrate, but that wasn't to be. In fact, the disciples looked at the women like they were crazy. And most of them dismissed their story as just so much nonsense. <clears throat> it's the reaction many people in the world are experiencing today, isn't it? Faced once again with the story of the resurrection as they prepare for brunch or to bite the ears off a chocolate bunny. Nonsense. Before being brought to faith, it sounds like news that's just too good to be true, and so it must not be. You know, we can hardly fault the disciples' reaction. They'd seen him crucified. The only dead people that, they'd, that had ever returned to life, as far as they knew, were the ones Jesus himself had resurrected. And then they remembered. Peter and John ran to the tomb to see for themselves. The stone was rolled away. The angel was gone. But so was Jesus. The tomb was empty. Only the grave cloths remained, the wrappings, folded neatly on Jesus' former resting place. And they returned so they could spread the good news as well. You know, on this Easter Sunday, maybe it's time to rethink life and the finality of death. In writing to the first century Christians at Corinth, the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead, almost certainly in response to people who were saying there is no such thing. And he argues that, yeah, there is such a thing. And for proof, he points to the resurrection of Jesus some 20 years earlier. Listen to Paul's argument from 1 Corinthians once more, this time from a modern English translation. He says, Let me remind you now, dear brothers, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. I passed on to you what was most important and what also had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and the twelve, and after that he was seen by more than 500 followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, 
I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. In his former days, Paul had been a Pharisee, and he'd been a well-known persecutor of Christ's church until he uh, actually saw Jesus, appeared to him, and uh, he changed sides. You can hear in his voice how Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection touched a whole world of lives, and still does. Now, Paul goes on to talk about those who trust in Christ eventually leaving cemeteries. And that reminds us of those words from Revelation about death being no more. One of the places we hear those words is um, when we're uh, at the cemeteries, uh, when they're read, and we're gathered around an open grave, you know, about to lower the casket containing the body of a loved one into the ground. And there at the graveside, sometimes, you know, in the chilling winds and the, the driving rain whipping around us, when we're huddled together trying to find a different kind of warmth, one that can ward off the chill of having been touched by death, we need to hear this promise of another life from God. See, the home of God is now with his people, it says. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. The first things have passed away. That's another way of saying that this, this fallen world has passed away, or we've moved beyond this fallen world. Don't you ever feel like you, like you live in bondage some days? Victimized? Trampled under? Your choices restricted? Your, your hopes stolen away? You know, that's what living in a fallen, sinful world is like. We get some good days and we get some not-so-good days, but the good days never seem to last very long, and the, the not-so-good days seem to stretch on forever, don't they? It's all about that line between good and bad getting blurred. But by God's grace, as children of God, people of God living in a world very different from the one God originally intended for us, we no longer have to let our, foreign, our fallen world shackle us. Jesus did rise from the dead. There are no ifs about that. There are plenty of eyewitnesses. We just have to allow ourselves to get past the mystery of it. And we can, with God's help. A couple of lines, really, from a new book from author Dean Kuntz. <clears throat> I think it just came out a couple of weeks ago. It really has nothing to do with Easter in the context of the book. But when I read it, it seemed to make perfect sense in application to Easter. Listen to what it says. Life is full of mysteries, isn't it? And maybe we don't always need to know the answers to them. Each thing we don't understand is a wall. And we spend our lives throwing ourselves against those walls, with little to show for it in the end. Maybe sometimes it's just best to accept the limitations of our understanding, except that some things will be forever beyond our knowledge. Uh, the book is titled uh, The Other Emily, and it's uh, good, very scary stuff. But isn't that Easter for some people? A wall? They want so desperately to believe that there's something more, something better. They want so desperately to believe that they'll see their loved ones again someday in a perfect place, already prepared for them. But God's Easter promise of forgiveness and redemption and life after life isn't meant to be understood in the sense that we understand how God can make it all happen. And in that sense, it might be beyond our knowledge. After all, we could never do it without him. 
but it won't always be beyond our experience. See, if we could understand everything about God, then he wouldn't be nearly big enough to make it all possible. But the joy of life, the life to come begins in this life, in a new life, born out of the waters of holy baptism, in the forgiveness we receive with the sacrament of holy communion, in the help and guidance and comfort and love, and most of all, the sure hope of sins forgiven. Easter was never meant to be a wall to keep us apart from God. It's more like an open door inviting us into a loving relationship that will last forever, all through this life and beyond. It's a gift to be accepted, to be embraced by faith. The empty tomb was no illusion. It was no special effect. Paul is emphatic about that. Our Lord's personal appearance to hundreds of people after his resurrection isn't some ancient myth. It's history. You know, the Easter story reminds us that while we may not exactly want to embrace death today because there's so much we're reluctant to leave behind, we never have to fear it. The goal of our faith is to die in Christ and be welcomed into our eternal home. The resurrection means that every husband or wife who has ever buried a spouse, every woman who has lost a, a child, every son or daughter who has ever lost a parent, will one day have their grief removed and replaced with happy reunions. Now, many of you probably have a life insurance policy in place to provide for your loved ones after you're gone. You're guaranteed to them that even in death, you'll continue to care for them. Jesus' victory over death in the grave is our life assurance from God. His guarantee that all his promises are true. Everyone he ever made sealed by the empty tomb that comforts us today. The tomb is empty, and our future is secure because our Savior lives. And by faith, so will we. Christ is risen. Amen. Let's continue now.